Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skill. We'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. We are really excited to have Benjamin Bergen, who is the president of the Council of Canadian Innovators and his colleague Dana O'Born on the Venture for Canada podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Benjamin and Dana, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Scott. First off, a very broad question in terms of your work. Can you describe the Council of Canadian Innovators at a high level? What is your mission? What is your mandate? Yeah, so great question. Um, So we work with scaling technology companies to really help build a better public policy framework for all technology companies in Canada. And so we've got about 150 member companies. These are firms that are traditionally more than 5 million in reoccurring revenue. And we really look at sort of what are the levers that are required in order to build a successful innovation economy here in Canada. And really what that's about doing is championing domestic technology companies. And that's really what most successful innovative uh, countries do in the world. So thinking about places like Israel or South Korea or the United States. And so our work really is to engage and work with uh, federal uh, governments uh, and also provincial governments as well, and really helping to bring companies and CEOs perspectives into uh, into that discourse. There are many different industry councils in Canada, most notably, I think of the Business Council of Canada, and there are many lobbyists in Ottawa. What was the gap that you set out to address when you went and created the Council of Canadian Innovators? So I think we should give a little credence to our uh, chairs who who are the, are the real founders of the organization. So Jim Balsilli and John Ruffalo. Um, but indeed, you're correct. There are lots of people who advocate for a lot of issues in Ottawa. Um, look, we we really recognize sort of a big gap in the in the technology ecosystem. So there was the startup community, which is you know heavily supported and subsidized by a lot of the incubators and accelerators across the country. And then you kind of make this big jump over to the foreign multinationals and incumbents that have been around for a very long time. And so sort of sandwiched in between, those uh, in between those two groups was this uh, sort of unvoiced um, group of companies who were successful, uh, you know, despite or in spite of government uh, support. And they had been successful in their own merits and growing really quickly. And um, I guess really that's the genesis of this conversation around scale ups in Canada. And so to Ben's point around the 5 million and reoccurring revenue threshold and above, a lot of those companies um, just didn't have a voice. And so um, wrapping a community around a group like that, that have different needs from government at different uh, stages of growth, um, different requirements in terms of uh, the public policy meter in Canada. And we're also looking to network and um, you know share a voice in Ottawa, in, uh, in different legislatures across the country. So we really look to occupy that segment of, of the tech ecosystem. And uh, lo and behold, we've had some great companies that have graduated from the startup world into, uh, into this space. And um, as we see some of this uh, boom happening across the country, um, hopefully you know that, uh, that space continues to grow 
um, and we get to continue to working with those companies. One of the things we were talking about in the pre-show is how the Council of Canadian Innovators is in essence a startup itself, that you two were the first uh, initial employees of the organization. You started it from the ground up and you built it into a national organization that is involved in engaging not just the federal government, but provincial governments across the country from Alberta to Quebec. And you really built a national organization from, from scratch. Can you tell us a little bit about what has that journey looked like over the last four or five years? How have you created this national organization? Yeah, so, you know, it originally just started off with, you know, uh, myself being sent uh, an Excel doc uh, from uh, John Ruffalo saying, you know, these are 16 companies that are interested in kind of engaging in public policy and potentially, you know, joining the council. So it started off really just with an Excel doc uh, and actually my laptop from university is kind of how everything sort of originally got going. And, you know, since then, um, we've grown to, you know, almost 150 member companies in, in, in multiple jurisdictions. And what that looked like really was us just finding kind of one issue originally to begin with at the federal level. And that was really around access to talent. And you know, using that to help kind of mobilize and bring people uh, together. And and you know, we don't sell you know a product. We really just sell ideas in the hopes of creating a better kind of tech ecosystem. So it was about getting people to buy in to the ideas uh, that we were um, bringing forward. And and through that, you know, begin beginning to draw sort of media and attention and bring folks towards uh, towards us. And really, the the big shift happened for us as an organization where we kind of went from sort of five employees to to now um 14 is really around uh covid um and a lot of that actually was the work that uh that dana was doing in terms of our response uh to covid and originally we had just um you know in kind of february of 2020 just decided to create like a little a little kind of flat channel and group people talking about how to deal with some of the challenges around covid from um, supply chain issues uh, as it was dealing with China and a few other like work policy things. Then, you know, lo and behold, obviously we arrive in March and it sort of consumes everything. And really, we ended up being um, ecosystem connectors to the government uh, and tech companies and not just our member companies. We kind of decided to open up our doors. And ultimately, that led to kind of tremendous growth in terms of membership, um, going from, you know, kind of 70 companies close to 150. And really with, you know, sort of the power and, and mandate to begin to engage uh, not just the federal government on a myriad of topics, but also the provinces as well. And one of the things about us as a country and as, as you know, as a federation of provinces is that they have a lot of power and agency as well in this space, especially around things like data and privacy and education. And so, you know, the the I would say kind of one of the the kind of pivotal moments really for us was COVID in terms of being able to expand. And it created almost like a, a moment where folks really realized that government was so critical for everything from them being even able to operate uh, under certain restrictions to accessing funding um, to to the healthcare system. And, you know, we're in in the business of decoding government, engaging government and helping to uh, work with government. So that for us was kind of the, the big piece. But I will I will say, Scott, there were days when, you know, Ben and I were 
um, you know, shoved into a small little meeting room with, you know, papers flying everywhere and Excel files and and things and kind of looking at each other like, oh my God, how are we going to get through this? And um, we have a saying at CCI that's, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. So, you know, strongly and surely just taking pieces that were important and hiving them off and really focusing intently on them um, and then building them out and building capacity around them has been really key to our success. I really like that elephant saying. I've never heard that before, but I think anyone who's been involved in building something from scratch and sometimes can be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of things to do, that is a good way uh, to, to think about it. And also, I remember one line that I think someone paraphrased from Bill Gates, which is that people often underestimate what you can do in 10 years and overestimate in three. So to your point, patience is key when building these kinds of things. At least that relates a little bit to my experience at Venture for Canada. One of the things I love in doing this podcast is really diving deep in terms of research uh, about different guests and uh, their work. And one of the things, perhaps what the line that I noticed came up the most uh, when researching CCI is the phrase intangible economy. Uh, it's definitely something that you folks uh, talk uh, about a lot. So what is the intangible economy and why is it so important for Canada's economic future? So the intangible economy is the economy. And that's kind of where we've actually arrived at in terms of the 21st century. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the intangible economy is things like intellectual property, it's data, and then it's all the facets that kind of govern these pieces. And in 1975, 17% of the S&P 500 value was the intangible economy. Fast forward to today, 95% of the economy is the intangible in terms of its value on the S&P 500. So this is ultimately where all of the wealth is. This is ultimately where prosperity comes from. And in order for, it, for Canada and why it's important for Canada to be really engaged in the intangible is that this is where our wealth and prosperity will come from as a country. This is how we will pay for social programs. This is how we will actually build the civil society that we want in the 21st century. So it's important because it is the economy. It's where everything is going. And ultimately, it's how we're going to actually pay for things that we care about. It's so critical for Canada's future. And, and to your point, the Canadian economy of the 21st century is going to be very different than the Canadian economy of the 20th century. And the countries that reap the benefits of the intangible economy are ultimately the ones that are going to be the places that can offer the highest quality of living uh, moving forward. To the point, 120 years ago, the average Argentinian made more than the average Canadian versus today, the economic situation of those two countries are significantly different. Going back to one point that you talked about earlier, which is the importance of talent in fueling the innovation economy. I saw it's one of the three main pillars that your organization advocates on. It's very core to the work of Venture for Canada, which is around fostering the entrepreneurial skills of young people and fostering more talent uh, for the Canadian uh, economy. What do you view as some of the greatest challenges that your uh, member companies are facing when it comes to, to talent? And what are some specific wins that your organization has had over the last couple of years as it relates to government policy and innovation and talent? So in terms of challenges that our member companies are facing around talent, this is actually kind of interesting because um, 
you know, six months ago, I, I would have had a very clear answer for you, right? Ability to find kind of anyone in sort of any role within the tech space is a real challenge. So looking for, you know, software engineers, looking for, you know, folks who have sale capacity, looking for senior leadership. Um, however, in the last, you know, six months, obviously, given the way that the economy is beginning to kind of shape and shift a bit in terms of, you know, whether we're going to enter a recession, we are hearing some of that kind of alleviating pressure uh, from our member companies on, uh, let's say, poaching that was occurring and some of those other challenges. So I think there's a bit of a question mark in terms of what the totality of that will look like, let's say, another six from, months from now. But where our companies are still communicating challenges is really finding senior leadership or, or, or senior skills. Um, so looking for, let's say, you know, CTOs, CFOs, those folks that really have the capacity to take a company from, let's say, a million to 10 million to 100 million to a billion. And oftentimes, because we don't have a lot of that capacity here in Canada, you have to go overseas to get it. Um, and so one of the things that we worked on um, and something that, that Dana you know, championed and was really behind was the Global Skills Visa. So that's that visa program that allows highly skilled workers to enter Canada in a two-week processing time. And that's been huge uh, for our member companies to be able to bring in one or two people that really have skills that they just couldn't find in this country and ultimately are able to end up building a team around and building capacity uh, for their organization. And so, you know, as we mentioned in the digital, uh, you know, economy piece, the intangible economy is, is everything that if we don't have these highly skilled workers to help build these companies, we're not going to be able to play, you know, the wealth and prosperity game of the 21st century. And if I can just jump in, Scott, on that too, I think it's really interesting. There are some uh, statistics out there, you know, backing up this, concern that our CEOs have have shared. Um, one of those reports that we often uh, lean on is one by the ICTC, which forecasts that by 2025, um, employment in the Canadian digital economy will reach about 2.26 million. Um, and that's going to result in the triggering of a demand of an additional 250,000 jobs. So, um, you know, there's all these other forces at play, but these companies simply can't grow if they don't have the talent to build out these teams and, you know, deliver their services. And um, numbers like that are really, uh, really um, interesting to examine as we, you know, hear it anecdotally from our CEOs, but also uh, see the so see those uh, stats coming from the research side as well. And all of this is in the context of the fact that Canada has a rapidly aging population. That uh, if it wasn't for immigration, I recently read Canada's labor force would actually be shrinking right around now. We're right on the, the precipice. Shifting gears a little bit to a different topic, which you folks also are experts in, which is intellectual property. And it's, it seems like it's one of the core policy issues that you've been engaged with provincial and federal governments over the last uh, couple of years. And in particular, it seems like have made a significant impact in Ontario with some of the work that the provincial government has has done with regards to intellectual property. What should a comprehensive data and intellectual property strategy for Canada look like? Well, Scott, first of all, I'd love to thank you for the word expert. Um, I would say we are, uh, we have, we work with a lot of people across the country who are uh, experts in this space in a much more advanced way than we are. And to be honest, we've learned from the benefit of those folks around us. Um, but let's maybe sort of break those two questions up and talk a little bit about design on both of them. So data on, on that front in terms of a comprehensive strategy as what Ben described is really the foundation of a 21st century economy. Um, the volume 
of data that companies and governments produce is growing exponentially. Business models in the private sector constantly seek new ways of managing and unlocking the value of that data to help their businesses grow. So in this regard, there are sort of two important areas that I would just drill down on for the purposes of this conversation in terms of where government needs to play a role. So one, that the correct protections are set by regulation and how that data is used in the private sector. And that's important for things like consumer protection, privacy, human rights, and national sovereignty to, to an extent. And so if companies are operating in Canada, those rules need to be very clear and in the benefit for Canada's economy. So and in other words, or in another analogy, if we're going to allow the kids to play in the playground, they need to know the rules. The second piece to that is that there's also the consideration of the data that's produced and governed by the government themselves. So defining clear rules on how that data is managed and potentially interacted with on the private sector, you know, for positive economic benefit or for uh, improved policy development and civic engagement. Those things all need to be under consideration as well. But broadly speaking, you know, to sum up those two points on the data side, I think you know, a data strategy for Canada should be one where the rules are clear, um, often defined by standard setting and one that's designed to protect our prosperity, our security, and our values. Now, on the question of IP um, or intellectual property uh, and a strategy for Canada, a lot of the value derived in an innovation economy comes down to who owns what. So this concept of innovation itself is the commercialization of ideas. And in order to see value of that commercialization, it needs to be protected. And the tools to protect those ideas come down to patents or intellectual property strategies to ensure um, to ensure that protection. So you're indeed right. There's been a lot of activity with different governments, Ontario, and you know a little nod to the federal government as well on developing what's called the Innovation Asset Collective. I'll unpack that in a moment, but. Um, when we look at the tech activity that's taking place across Canada over the past few years, it means that there's a lot of ideas that are being commercialized. So how do we protect those ideas and ensure that they are benefiting uh, the local economy? So the Innovation Asset Collective was set up by the federal government as sort of a sovereign patent fund of sorts. Um, indeed, you're correct. The Ontario government has recently set up what's called IPON, um, an acronym that stands for IP Ontario, which is Ontario's new IP agency. But we've also seen a number of other jurisdictions, uh, British Columbia and Alberta, starting to consult on this idea of an intellectual property strategy for the provinces. But I would say that there are still a few missing pieces um, to kind of bring together this whole comprehensive concept that you talk about and in order for Canada to have um, a, a fulsome strategy. And that includes things like incentivizing patent development through R&D programs. So one of the things that CCI advocates for is um, um, eligible tax credits under uh, the SHRED program or the Scientific Research and Experimental Program. Another consideration is that big government funding envelopes should also include conditions for IP strategies for projects that either generate R&D or further um, uh, innovation products or services. And as we kind of open this conversation talking about different jurisdictions and how Canada can really pull ideas in and make them work here, um, we see that countries have been doing this for a very long time. And at CCI, we kind of also have this saying, which sums it all up, that um, innovation without an IP strategy is simply just philanthropy. 
you've clearly been asked that question uh, in the past and it was it was a it was a very thorough answer. Well, it's interesting if I could just jump in because some of this stuff is very technical and it's important to also kind of translate that technical stuff into an understanding of how it impacts all of us, right? So, I mean, we talked a little bit about the about COVID uh, you know, briefly before, but you know, no one was really talking about IP um, or really understand, understood what it meant. And then all of a sudden we had this conversation around patents when it came to vaccinations. So now it's kind of coming into, into public discourse, but that whole um, sort of style and work of, of, of the economic base really also is, is part of, of this whole innovation conversation as well. Also on the topic of intellectual property and sidewalk labs, one of the things I've noticed your organization has spoken a lot about over the last several years is the tendency by the federal government and federal agencies and provincial governments to give money to international or foreign uh, corporations to set up R&D shops in Canada. And some folks and policymakers or people in tech ecosystems can say there's a huge benefit uh, to this. So for instance, I'll share so there's somebody from who I interviewed earlier who uh, this week who was very active in the gaming sector. He does not work for Ubisoft. He has his own private company. And I asked him in the, the green room, uh, the pre-taping, why does Montreal have such a large gaming sector? And he's an expert on this. He's, he's paid by governments around the world to go and advise on how do you create gaming ecosystems from an economic development level. And he, his argument was the government of Quebec in the 60s and 70s and 80s made significant investments in building a huge Ubisoft presence in Montreal. So now I think he said they employ 4,000, 5,000 people. And consequently, now there are all these other independent Quebec-based gaming companies, including himself, that have sprung up from this initial uh, investment. That being said, I also, I'm in some ways playing devil's advocate. I understand the cons of it, I'm just voicing his perspective. What are your thoughts on these kinds of government initiatives that promote foreign direct investment in R&D activities within Canada? What are your concerns? What do you think policymakers should be doing? So I'll quickly start this um, and then I'll kick it to Ben because uh, there's this, this issue is very complex. And I'll start, start off by just saying that one of the things that we don't measure in Canada it are um, the economic spillover effects of foreign direct investment. And so we really have no metrics of measuring, you know, what kind of economic activity, positive or negative results when um, governments attract foreign companies to set up, you know, operations or R&D shops or whatever here. Um, but the one thing that is um, absolutely apparent in the work that we do is that it leaves our CEOs scratching their heads uh, with, you know, why isn't government working with us on a, on, on exactly the same uh, business model that we have? And a very clear example of that was um, the Amazon HQ2 piece. I it, it was remarkable to just see all of these politicians sort of waving their hands in the air saying, we'll do whatever it takes to get you to come here. And uh, we want all these high paying jobs. And you know our CEO is saying, wait a minute, this is not this is not just competitors moving into our backyard. This is a, a major company that's going to come in and hoover up all of our talent. So you know these these sort of decisions, policy decisions, investment decisions that governments um, make actually have negative um, impacts on on the domestic ecosystem. But 
you know, to my first point, we just don't measure it. So, so there's there's a plethora of of pieces that are related to this, and, and the economics of it is 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 much more esoteric. But um, you know, just to open with that. But Ben, I'll kick it to you on this. Yeah, for sure. So I think you know, uh, economic and uh, innovation policy needs to be iterative, right? So something that made sense, let's say in the 70s and 80s, where there was, let's say, a, a nascent economy around this space, like sure, you know, some tax incentives and, and ideas in terms of supporting that, you know, may be necessary. But let's fast forward to where we are now. Uh, in Montreal, there is uh, negative uh, employment in the tech and innovation space, meaning they have to bring people there. and Foreign multinationals are often given tax credits that domestic companies cannot access. So our member companies are going uh, to war for talent for highly skilled workers and are competing with foreign multinationals that are given sometimes, you know, 30% discount um, on, on talent and are, are being promoted by provincial and federal governments over domestic companies. And so what I would say is that policy needs to be iterative and it needs to be updated constantly. We can't be stuck in, you know, 80s uh, public policy around innovation. You know, I think Daniel probably would say something about shred here uh, as kind of a bit of a jab. Um, but um, that's that's really kind of the critical piece here is that public policy needs to be updated. Now, to revert back to kind of our earlier, uh, you know, kind of commentary, it really is creating wealth when you own the IP and the data that you're generating. And the Ubisoft, you know, comment that you're making is none of that's residing in Quebec. And so, yes, it's, you know, maybe creating, and I'm using air quotes when I say the word creating, because we know that there's negative employment in, in, on the island, is a job strategy. And a job strategy is fine if that's what you want to do as a government, but you're not playing in the wealth and prosperity game. It is only in the ownership of the idea and the IP that you're actually able to generate real wealth and prosperity. So I think it's it's a bit uh, short-sighted in terms of us supporting foreign firms over domestic. We as an organization don't believe in autarky. We don't believe in you know shutting the border and, and not allowing you know foreign companies to come here, but uh, providing them with you know sort of massive incentives. Um, is not actually how you grow an innovation economy. I grew up in Nova Scotia and growing up in the 90s and 2000s, the strategies of local provincial governments were often more around, let's get big American companies to open call centers or very uh, often opening the kinds of facilities that, uh, that create lots of jobs, but to your point, don't necessarily create a huge amount of economic prosperity. And it is interesting to your point about you have to adapt economic policy to the context that, that you operate in. Potentially in the 70s and 80s, that made sense. But policymakers need to adapt to, to new circumstances. And I think it's a very interesting point, uh, especially as it relates to the Ubisoft example. Building off one thing you just said, Ben, the topic of shred. And shred is something that I feel like is the, it's like the cilantro of Canadian innovation policy. People either uh, love it or they really, really uh, hate it. It tends to, to not, uh, tends to have very polarizing uh, views. So Dana, what it, first off for our listeners, what is Shred? And what are some of the existing issues with Shred? Should Shred be reformed? Should it be eliminated as a program? 
what are your thoughts on, on the future of shred? Um, so shred is, is, a, a three it kind of waivers between three and 4 billion tax credit program that the federal government delivers for, uh, to incentivize R and D. And, um, again, you know, research and development is, is a vast bucket and can range from, you know, um, measuring chemicals going into the development of a new mine or figuring out what a medical device, um, uh, looks like as it operates, you know, in a certain part of your body. So it's a, uh, it's a vast, um, program. And um, I would just first start off by saying that, no, we don't think that it should be eliminated, um, but we certainly believe that it should be modernized. And in fact, the federal government had responded to that call in the last uh, federal budget. And keep in mind that this is sort of the third iteration of, of what um, the federal government has considered a, a modernization effort in the last, uh, I would say, you know, 20 years. Um, but the program is really suited to supporting the tangible economy and not necessarily kind of uh, awake yet to what the intangible economy looks like. So really advanced technology like quantum and AI is still sort of foreign in the understanding of how to measure what R&D looks like in that space. And so some of the things that um, we've been talking about a lot, and I've already mentioned, uh, one was, you know, creating uh, eligibility for the development of patents uh, within the within the SHRED program. Uh, another thing which you were probably alluding to in the opener of this question is how um, some people don't like the program very much. It is very cumbersome and often requires third party auditors or third party uh, consultants to to really be the deliverer of, of what that cred credit looks like from, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and making sure that the application for that credit um, is all in uh, good shape in order to receive it. And, you know, sometimes these credits take a long time to get to companies. And um, when you're relying on that source of income to be able to, uh, you know, do the development, do the research, hire other people, um, that waiting time can can often be very frustrating for companies. There's another really interesting sort of technical piece that, you know, we're also advocating for, which you'll hear more about in the next few weeks from us, is around um, some of the incremental changes that are included in how technology is developed and that the, the shred credit program doesn't necessarily recognize those incremental changes. And so, in simple form, think of version one and think of version 15. And back to my example, which I think just makes the most sense for the purposes of this conversation, a medical um, device that's inserted into your body. I mean, if it uh, goes through the regulatory process of, of um, being approved by Health Canada um, to go into our bodies, it uh, it better work. And so the the research that it takes to make sure that that's a high functioning um, you know device um, requires a lot of incremental changes over time based on how our bodies function and and the response rate from patients. But um, that's not entirely recognized by by the Shred Tax Credit Program. So um, we believe that effectively. You know, the program just needs to be modernized to reflect how businesses operate these days, um, to understand the intangible economy a little bit better, to understand data sets. Um, so companies that are doing really intensive R&D are actually being able to maximize the eligibility for the program. What are your concerns with the Supercluster program? Why is it a program that you have criticized uh, publicly? And uh, what would you suggest policymakers should do when considering the future renewal of potential funding for the global supercluster initiative? What I would say about you know, supercluster or clusters or global clusters is initially, uh, 
we were cautiously optimistic, right? The chair of our organization actually gave a, a, a positive quote on, uh, on the news release. But what it signaled in his quote was that they had to make sure that they got the governance structure correct in the super clusters in order for them to be successful. And this kind of ties back to actually some of the comments that Dana made earlier around IP and data. And if you look at how the clusters were set up, uh, each one of them has kind of their own governance structure and IP and data. Each one of them kind of has their own maturations in terms of what that looks like. And the rules of it as sort of dollars were beginning to flow were never kind of clearly laid out. And, you know, our kind of criticism of it is one, you know, it's about strategy. It's about figuring out how do we capture the value um, that's being generated out of Canadian taxpayer dollars? Like how do we get our best return uh, on investment? And then coupled with, you know, those concerns that we have, you know, there was obviously the Parliamentary Budget Office, which, you know, laid out a report, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, that really articulated that the superclusters themselves hadn't delivered, you know, some of the promises that we were told, right, that they would actually help facilitate cluster building, that they would actually lead to, you know, X thousands of jobs. And so this is the government's own report being, you know, critical of the program um, and its delivery. And I think, you know, in the most recent budget, we've actually seen that funding that they were looking for actually come down in terms of, uh, of values, in terms of the renewal of the program. And, and really, you know, our articulation is that if, if those dollars are not, you know, going to building, you know, a cohesive strategy in, you know, specific regions around IP and data, then, you know, looking at other ways of deploying that capital might be a better way for Canada to get a return uh, on its investments. And so, you know, we as an organization look at all programs critically. We provide carrot and stick to government. So we'll say super nice things about things that are working and that our member companies are super supportive of. But we will challenge how dollars are being spent if it's not leading to really the outcomes uh, that, that um, are needed in order for Canada to be a successful innovation economy. Ben and Dana, we have covered a really wide range of topics uh, today, from superclusters to talent strategy to intellectual property. For our listeners who are interested in building a more innovative, a more equitable, a more prosperous country, what is one key takeaway that you want listeners to go home thinking about? So look, I think it's actually get involved, right? I mean, I think we often view, you know, public policy as something that happens behind kind of closed doors and is, you know, somehow some kind of mystique. But really, um, engagement uh, and participating is actually the way that you begin to kind of shape and, and, and change things. And so, you know, there's, there's there many different kind of venues in terms of how you can engage. But I would say, you know, really kind of the participating in the public space is, is a really great way to begin to, to do that. Um, Dana, I think uh, I think you also uh, mentioned you've got a you've got a comment that you want to jump in on. Um, as policy does get developed on the technical side from a government perspective, that engagement piece that Ben mentioned, of course, is critical. But it's also just really paying attention to um, your behavior and how you interact on on these platforms and 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 really thinking about that as we sort of evolve as a civil society. So I would leave it, I would leave it at that. And to both comments, ultimately, I think when we think of the health of democracies and governments and countries, uh, countries get all to, or people get the governments that they deserve in some ways. And I think as we think of a country and how we 
foster our, our democracy and government. So much of it comes down to every citizen being engaged and contributing and not being a passive player. And when we think of the significant challenges Canada faces in the 21st century, it's recognizing to not pass the buck on other, to other people and that all of us have an onus of getting involved and engaged. So I think that that is a great note to end on. Ben and Dana, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you today. We've covered a ton of different topics. Thanks for all the work that you do to foster a more innovative Canada. And thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thank you, Scott, for, for having us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at venture for canada that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormiston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.